0: I am a member here, my wife Julie, been members here since we moved to California uh, six years ago. Um, I was a pastor in a Chicago suburb prior to coming here. Before that I was a LCMS pastor in in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. I came here in 2015 uh, to Concordia. So I teach Theology and bioethics, medical ethics at Concordia in Irvine. And so that was, I just finished my sixth year doing that, and that has really flown by. It's incredible to me that it's been that long. So I'm starting my seventh year doing that. And uh, what we're going to do for uh, for, um, much of the summer, or however long, is going to be the book of Acts. That's what we're going to do today. So, but I would like to start us off with a short prayer, if you don't mind. Let's pray. Dearest Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for your many gifts which you give to us, your children. We thank you for calling us out of darkness into light, um, from death into life. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son into the world to be our Redeemer. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the uh, inspiration of the holy scriptures that you have provided for our guidance and wisdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we're gonna. um, The book of Acts is twenty-eight chapters. Okay. uh, Yeah, I don't know if people need Bibles. It'd be great if you have one or on a device, be able to look things up. Okay, (laughs) but uh, the book of Acts is twenty-eight chapters, which is uh, it's a long book, and we are not going to have enough time to do all of it in as much detail and depth as. I would enjoy doing it could last us a long time but uh, so uh, that means we're going to be selected uh, when with what we cover there are probably well there will be some chapters that we'll just skip and there'll be other parts where I kind of move through things so that I can highlight there's actually a number of ways you can teach a book like this usually pastors will just go verse by verse by verse And and that's a lot of fun, but again, time. If we did that, we'd only get through maybe I don't know chapter three or something, (laughs) chapter four. I had a seminary professor who uh, uh, was the book of Genesis, his long book, the Bible. I had the book of Genesis at the seminary, and it's Hebrew, so we're reading, we're using Hebrew. But we got through, I I think, maybe the middle of chapter two in one (laughs) semester. It's like, well, we actually didn't, you know, there's a whole lot we didn't get to. So I don't want to do that. I want to, and the other, another possible way to approach a book of the Bible is to do themes. You know, we could just say, well, what does the Bible say about uh, baptism? And, or what does Acts say about baptism? And then just look through the whole book for passages on baptism or Christology or something. And I thought of maybe doing that, but I decided that I, I won't. Instead, I'm going to do selections, uh, what we call pericopes. I'm going to select things. And then, okay, so. Now that you know what my format will be, uh that doesn't mean we can't uh, stay on something if you want to, if I'm moving fast or if I skip something that you want to ask about or hear about, we can we can do that too. I don't mind going off my plan to a point <laughs> uh, as much as I'm able, right? So, um the book of Acts is, um, I, I'm sure that you're familiar with it. Ma- maybe you've even had a Bible study on it. I don't know if it's been taught or studied here anytime time recently. Uh, the impression I had was that, that it hadn't been. But, uh, but you've probably read it. Many of you have at least looked at it. It is not a book that gets a lot of coverage in the lectionary. So the, the selected Bible readings for Sunday worship, Uh, the traditional calendar of readings, does have some Acts, but uh, but it's not going to be, it doesn't have a lot. There's not a lot. So if you, if the only exposure to the book you've had is maybe going to church, you you haven't actually heard all that much. The uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, of course, Pentecost is going to be on Pentecost and so on. So, we're gonna do today, I'm gonna do a little introduction to the book, what is it, why is it, who wrote it, and then um, we'll see how far we go. I'm gonna do some first chapter, I for sure wanna do Pentecost today. That's chapter two, okay? So we'll see, we'll see what happens. All right, so for intro material, uh, a little background, the, uh, the book of Acts is, Uh, thought to be written by the same person who wrote the third gospel, Luke. So Luke is um, traditionally assigned to be the author. So a lot of times scholars, when they read Acts, they keep that in mind. It's the same guy who wrote the book of Luke. So maybe it should even be viewed as one work in two volumes. And so a lot of times commentators and people will call, will say, Luke Acts. A sort of one hyphenated word, Luke-Acts. Uh, so sometimes I might refer to some stylistic things that you can detect uh, from both books, or some thematic material where it's, okay, maybe, maybe the book of Acts says something a certain way, and we can look at uh, Luke to see, oh, okay, that's maybe why. So we'll do a little bit of that, Luke-Acts. And, and if, you know, considering that if you put those two together, that's, I've read, 28% of the New Testament. It's a lot, right? So Luke then, Luke, would have written more, uh, uh, in terms of percentage-wise, more of the New Testament than anybody else, even Paul. So. Hi. So I mentioned that Luke is, is traditionally seen as the author of this book. And uh, throughout church history that has been uniformly understood. And, and we look at a lot of second century material, uh, second century Christians who, were, uh, who wrote about Acts or refer to it, and it's always, always attested to, to Luke, the evangelist. And th- that's pretty strong. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty significant. I mean, that's how we know, or that's at least traditionally how we know who wrote many of the books of the Bible. Uh, You know what does tradition say? What did uh, early church fathers say? And uh, it's uh, it's written in kind of polished Greek, so it suggests that the author is an educated man. The author Luke is a companion of Paul. That uh, seems apparent because he, through much of the book, he uses the first person. In other words, he'll say we, we did this. We're talking about Paul. We did this. So he's a companion of Paul, which will be relevant for a few th- things I'll point out here and there. And um, if you, if you kind of recall, uh, maybe you've heard this, Luke is thought to be a physician. And that, well, yeah, uh, Luke is a physician because Paul says Luke, the beloved physician, in one of his epistles. And if it's the same Luke, then that tells us a little bit about, about the author. He, that was his profession. Was he Jewish or Gentile? Well, uh, there's there's arguments either way. Um, He's a Christian, uh, but and you know so there are arguments either way. But I'm going to operate with the assumption that uh, that he's Jewish. So um, if you have the book, I'm going to read. I'll do kind of a running commentary approach. I'll, I'll read passages with you, and then we'll 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 discuss them a little bit. So chapter one, verse one. Uh, And this helps us with my brief intro about authorship. Uh, He says, chapter 1, verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the author here wrote another book, okay, so Luke, Acts, and the author of Luke's Gospel, the author of the third Gospel, begins his Gospel with these words. Luke 1, 1 and, and through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That's, a, that, that's our basis for uh, believing that Luke wrote, the same, the same Luke wrote the third gospel and, uh, and the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This reference at the beginning of both in the preference, he's addressing Theophilus, which is a, a proper name, but it could also be a title. Who is this person he's writing to? That's a very interesting question. I don't know if we're just, we're just going to have to speculate about who, who that person was. But we can make some educated guesses. The name Theophilus, if it is a proper name, is a Greek word that means lover of God. Okay, Theophilus, lover of God. It was, uh, um, uh, it was actually a common Greek name, so it could very well have been a person whose name was Theophilus. We don't know for sure who that might be. Uh, He might have been uh, someone in authority, someone important. And that might be the case because since Luke is writing both of these books addressed to this person, uh, it was common in the ancient world to write uh, historical accounts uh, dedicated to someone important. You know, you want to write for the emperor. And, of course, you understand it's going to be more widely read. And, in fact, if you did dedicate something to the emperor or address it to the emperor, uh, he probably wasn't going to read it, uh, probably never would get to him, but, uh, but it would be read. So that wasn't unusual to write a book like these uh, with in mind to a certain person, especially someone in authority. It also would make sense if Theophilus is someone important because uh, much of what the book of Acts does is defend Christianity. Uh, th- we, we hear a lot of Paul's defenses of his ministry, not just before a Jewish audience, but before Romans too. So uh, he might, th- that wasn't, again, that wasn't unusual for first, second, third, second century people to try to give an explanation of what Christianity is for um, uh, new, uh, either new Christians or non-Christians. Now there is, r- well, I mean, I think there's really good reason to think that Theophilus was a Christian. He was not someone that was, say, in the Roman government who was persecuting the church, and so he needs to make a defense. Probably not. Because it says in Luke 1, uh, you know, that these you may know with certainty the things you've been taught. So Theophilus had been taught God's word, or taught about Jesus. In fact, the word for taught, uh, the Greek word is katakeo. Okay, so catechist, catechism, catechumen, uh, someone who's been taught or instructed most likely in the faith. And Luke does make the very, very interesting point right up front that this has been investigated. He's looked into this. He himself, uh, well, in Acts, he's an eyewitness, but when he writes the gospel, he, he, he may not have been an eyewitness of the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Maybe some of it. But he says that he is uh, looking and investigating amongst those who from the first were eyewitnesses. And I kind of like to ponder that even a little more because uh, Luke, you know, Luke's gospel is the only gospel that really says anything about um, the birth of Jesus. I mean, Matthew does too. Matthew has a little information about the infancy of Jesus. But that's that's mostly Luke, right? The Christmas story that we all know and love, and uh, and th- you know the the Annunciation and uh, Mary's visit to her uh, cousin Elizabeth, all that you know is from Luke's Gospel. So where did he get that? If he's talking to eyewitnesses, who's the eyewitness that he's talking about for Bethlehem? Um, well, he's probably talking to Mary, right? I mean, so that's kind of a very, I think, a very kind of interesting thing that the guy who wrote the third Gospel probably interviewed the mother of Jesus uh, for a lot of his information. How else, you know? That's um, so he, uh, he says, uh, he does mention eyewitnesses, uh, the, uh, uh th- so this is a history, he's writing, uh, about things that happened, it's not a myth, but even when you write history, right, I mean, uh, um, it's historical, it's true, it's factual historically, but it also has a point when you write history anybody even today when you write history you 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 select what you're going to focus on and what you're going to say and how you're going to interpret things so when we when we work through acts uh, a lot of times people will say you know think of acts as a history of the early church uh, the first history and it is that but uh, but it's also a book rich with theology and we don't always think of it that way you know of course the epistles of paul are dogmatic theological treatises almost sometimes. But we don't necessarily... And the Gospels have lots of teaching from Jesus and interpretation of events. Well, Acts does that too. So it's historical, it's history, but it's also trying to make a point. It's also trying to, to teach something uh, about, the earth, about the faith. So one of the things that people question, commentators like to write about this a lot. Um, if Luke... As he claims is an associate of Paul, how does uh, the typical Pauline themes? How do they come in play or appear in in his gospel of the book of Acts? And that actually is a bit of a makes you scratch your head a little bit, because Paul is for sure uh, the the teacher of justification by faith by faith alone. So. Uh, If you read Romans or the book of Galatians, uh, that's where we, especially Lutherans and anybody from the Reformation period uh, whose theology stems from the Reformation, uh, we love Galatians and we love Romans because of how much it talks about being justified before God by faith alone apart from works, works of the law. So you would think maybe that a close associate of Paul would talk about justification at least a little bit. At least when he's quoting Paul, and interestingly, uh, Acts really, really doesn't. <laughs> you know, so it's, so some people will. Th- that's what critics will say: is they'll look at it and they'll say, "Well, this is not uh, clearly not authentic. Uh, this is written by someone later who's trying to put into the mouth of the apostles things that the church two centuries later wanted him to say." So that's what critics will point out: is like we don't see. The 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 typical the uh, you know main themes of Saint Paul's writings in Luke's or in Luke's account in Acts, and there, the, the, there's truth in that. I mean, you don't you don't see there, the word justification, the concept of justification, does appear as far as I could tell once in the book of Acts, and in the book of Luke, uh, m- maybe one other time. Um, so, so anyway, so that's something that critics will point out, say, so, well, it doesn't seem to follow the Paul, typical Pauline themes, but, uh, uh, but I don't think that that has to mean, uh, mean all that much, and I, I may explain more about that as we move along. But finally, on Theophilus, if, he's not an, if it's not a proper name, it could be uh, a pseudonym, uh, and if that is the case, then that would possibly support the idea that this is someone important. If this is, a, a, say, a government official in first century Rome, then uh, who's a Christian, who's been catechized, who's getting more instruction, uh, he may not want his actual name <laughs> you know, being put out there because it would be dangerous for him. So it, it could be that it's a pseudonym or something that, that Luke is using. We don't know. Uh, it would be interesting. I wish we did, but we don't have like a history or biography of, of him. So that's uh, so in in chapter one of Acts one in my former book Theophilus, I wrote all about about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So I'm going to move now a little further into the book. The uh, next uh, bit I'll read is verse three. Um. Yeah, chapter one, verse three, where uh, where we start to hear about what Jesus did after the end in Luke's, in, in Luke's Gospel. So if Luke's Gospel and the other Gospels take us up through Easter and even the Ascension, then Acts picks that up. He picks up post-Easter uh, a bit, and then the Ascension is in here, and then what happens immediately after, and we'll get to Pentecost today. So verse three, he presented himself alive to them after suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. That 40-day period between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, well, you know, Paul talks about it, right? He says that we know that Jesus rose bodily from the grave because during those 40 days there were many eyewitnesses. Uh, He talked to many people and Paul kind of lists off to whom he appeared and how many people he appeared to. Uh, but we, we don't really know very much about what was Jesus teaching. I mean, 40 days is a long time. And if Jesus is continually teaching, as, as Luke says here, uh, during the 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, you know from the Gospels that uh, the kingdom of God is a major theme for the gospel, for Jesus. He talks about that a lot, or the kingdom of heaven, many of the parables which Luke records. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, or can be compared to. So if Jesus spends those 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God, and we don't have a record of it, you know, it's kind of interesting to wonder, what did he, what did he talk about? And, uh, and we may, through Acts, be able to detect a few things uh, that, that may have come up uh, during that time. I mean, even John tells us, right, that there were many things that Jesus said and did that are not, are not recorded. Uh, that we, um, uh, would, it would take enough books to fill up the whole world if that were to be the case. Uh, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And then verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. baptism is a, is a theme in the book. Uh, we'll hit upon it several times. What is baptism in the Holy Spirit? What is the baptism of John, John the Baptist? And what's what, What's the relationship of water baptism and spirit baptism? Or baptism with fire is another phrase. So we're going to actually spend some time on that as it comes up, including, including today, because we'll get to Acts 2, which is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto the church, onto the uh, apostles and their companions. What, but, but first I'll just say this. We all know John the Baptist. We call him the Baptist because that's what he did. In the Jordan River he baptized people and baptism uh, was um, pre-Christian Jews had something like it. I mean there were ritual washings that were part of Jewish religion. All kinds of different things. And if the word "baptize" means to wash, so Judaism has various types of ritual washings. We see this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's taught in the law. But, uh, but we also know from other outside sources like the Dead Sea Scrolls, how important for at least some, some Jews, uh, ritual washing and repeated ritual washings uh, with water actually were. So when John comes along and begins to baptize in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of sins, yeah, it's new. But uh, people had kind of had an idea of what might be going on, that there's a kind of purification, that there's a kind of going from unclean to clean. Uh, so, so, But what, okay, what is what John the Baptist did the same thing that the Christian church today does when we have baptisms? And I'm going to argue that it's not exactly the same thing. You now, Some people like to discuss that and try to figure out uh, what, is the, what is it. Well, we know we do, You know, the John, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <coughs> so it's not just a symbol, even with him. It's not just a, um, uh, out, uh, you know outward washing of the body that represents some other kind of inward transformation. But that it is toward the forgiveness of sins. Something um, happens, actually, when people are baptized. But John himself said, Uh, you know, I baptize you with water, but one will come after me who will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. So this idea of baptism, that there's going to be John's, and then there's going to be something else. We have the filling of the disciples in Acts chapter 2, but then there's going to be several places where uh, people will come along who said that we've been baptized in the baptism of John, but maybe something else needs to be done for us. uh, There'll be at least one other place where Uh, some people that Paul encounters say that they were baptized with John's baptism, but they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so John and Paul teaches them and lays hands on them after baptizing them in the name of Jesus. So when we read John the Baptist doing baptisms, or we read the word baptism in parts of Luke, it may not always mean exactly the same thing as what we do when we do a baptism here. It, It comes to that. I mean, Jesus institutes the sacrament, the Christian sacrament of baptism, in Matthew twenty-eight. Baptize all nations, teaching them, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that when he ascended, he would send a helper, that he would send the Holy Spirit uh, to to lead the peop- the disciples into truth. And to be their comforter. And here in Acts 1 uh, 1, verse 4, uh, uh, Jesus tells the disciples to go to Jerusalem, after he ascends, to go to Jerusalem, and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And uh, and, uh, and, and, and so that's what they do. Um, The ascension is recorded here as well in, in Acts chapter 1. It uh, tells us about Jesus going up into heaven out of sight of the disciples, and the angels coming down and telling them that uh, the, 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 uh, he will come again in the way that you saw him go. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. It's not the same Judas that that betrayed Jesus. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, uh, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Uh, um, they're going to select a replacement for Judas to be part of the apostolic band. But who's in this upper room? Well, we know the 12 are there, the remainder, the remaining uh, disciples. Mary and some of the women, and perhaps others. But if this is a house in Jerusalem, uh, you know, it, it's probably not the 120. It, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a, a massive number of people. And whenever, just a little small point, whenever the disciples are named in a list, Peter's always first. The other sequence may be different, uh, but Peter always gets mentioned first. Now, we kind of know him as the spokesman for the disciples. And, uh, you know, I teach church history, so one of the things I do when I teach church history to undergrads, I do a whole survey of all 2,000 years. But one of the topics that I, I, I dwell on, among many others, is the development of the idea of the bishop or of the ministry or of even the papacy throughout church history. As you probably know, uh, uh, the the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, uh, sees himself as a successor of Peter. Peter being said to be the first bishop of Rome. there are a couple of reasons why they like to say that, why they want to identify themselves with the apostle Peter. But here's, here's a small reason. Peter's always mentioned first amongst the disciples. There's a primacy of Peter. They mention Mary, other women, and his brothers. So, uh, does the whole question of the virginity of Mary, uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, I I don't know, maybe maybe this has been taught to you and you know kind of what I'm gonna say, but I'm I'm just gonna cover it anyway. Uh, Traditionally, the the fact that Mary is, is seen as the ever virgin, Semper Virgo, perpetually virgin throughout her life, is a traditional teaching uh, that even the reformers, not even just Luther, but Zwingli and Calvin, all the reformers held to as a traditional belief. It's not a dogma for them because you can't prove from scripture, but the idea that Mary is ever virgin, uh, you know, we identify that with Roman Catholicism, and rightly so, but it's just, I think, an interesting thing to point out that all Protestants, well, yeah, I mean, the main reformers, the magisterial reformers, in the 16th century. That wasn't an issue for them. Now they didn't pray to Mary, and they thought that uh, seeing Mary as some kind of an intercessor was wrong. But for whatever reason, the idea of Mary uh, being perpetually virgin was important. Even makes it into the Book of Concord with a couple of references. Uh, Even up till Pieper, in the 20th century, Francis Pieper, uh, first president of LCMS, uh, considered it to be true, so anyway, but, but, but the reason I mention it is because it says the brothers of Jesus, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And Protestants like to look at that and say, well, um, how, how can you teach that, that Mary is perpetually virgin when it says that he had brothers and sisters? Um, Luther's answer to that was, he, he just looked at <coughs> uh, the traditional view and, uh, and, he, and he cites Jerome. Fourth century church father who translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, and Jerome says that there are. Uh, see, I want to make sure I get have, have it in front of me when I say this next thing. There are basically there's four types of brothers. <clears throat> there's brethren that are brethren by, and I don't know if I remember all four now. But there's there's kin, okay. There's blood, right? But there's also brothers in the sense of all humanity, right? And then there's a sense of brothers in terms of your um, your, your group, uh, you know, uh, like in the church or something. And then there's brothers that are people you love. So early, early Christians were, and throughout, have been quick to point out that just saying that Jesus had brothers by itself doesn't necessarily mean that that's not, uh, that the perpetual virginity of Mary can't be true. Now, I personally would not make this a big theological point, but sometimes people do. Um, uh, but from my reading of Luther on this, he, he, he thought it was true but, uh, but but shouldn't be church dividing. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. But anyway, if you're talking to your Catholic friends, if you ever do, and you talk to them about the Virgin Mary, uh, this might be a part of the discussion. And, and so now you can say, well, brothers doesn't have to mean uh, brothers. Um, you know, I'll, I'll leave my own personal opinion kind of um, in the dark. Unless <laughs> and and let you, you think about that. But anyway... But if, you know, it's a bit of a detour, but if you, if you do look in, uh, in uh, the formula of Concord, the solid declaration, I forget exactly which part of the formula of Concord. Um, uh, it is referenced. Okay, they do talk about this as a, um, as a belief uh, that, uh, that helps them describe theo- a certain theological view. Now, verse 14, <coughs> they prayed and they said, You, Lord, uh, who knows the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen. Because they came up with two. Their criteria were that uh, to re- find a replacement for Judas, to add someone to the apostolic band, it has to be someone who's been with us from the beginning, who was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's not going to be a ton of people. So they came up with two, two individuals, uh, one of them being, uh, being an, a guy named Matthias. And they cast lots after praying. And Matthias is now numbered amongst the 12. The, the, um, uh, or the, yeah, he's now in part of the Apostolic uh, College. The apostles, um, sometimes today you will see people, uh, sometimes church, uh, churches will refer to their, I mean, not just the Mormons, but, but sometimes even within Christianity, sometimes they'll talk about their, their leaders as apostles. The apostles um, are are just these individuals. Plus, we we add Paul, and sometimes the word apostle, because it means one who is sent. Sometimes the word apostle might be used a little more broadly. But generally speaking, it's these individuals, 12, or counting Paul 13. It's those individuals who have the authority as ones who've been hand-chosen personally, directly, by the Savior, be their, uh, to be his spokespeople, and of course they all died, and when they did die, they appointed people who appointed people who appointed people down to the present time, and so that's why when we say the creed, and we speak about the church, and we say that we believe in the apostolic church, we're not just saying that we believe that there was a church in the first century. We are the apostolic church, okay, uh, we are the church founded by the Apostles and uh, you know and that's not just a historical observation but uh, but the Apostles spoke with the authority of Jesus Christ and they and they tell us things that we don't have in the Gospels right the uh, uh, Paul particularly in his uh, in his epistles uh, interprets and applies all of the Old Testament scriptures and what he knows about Jesus. He, he may or may not have been reading the Gospels that we have, but uh, um, and he, he explains the importance of Jesus, what Jesus is and what Jesus does. So uh, the apostles uh, have the authority directly from Jesus Christ, but when they died, uh, we don't have apostles anymore, but we still have the word and the teaching of the apostles. So when we say that we're the apostolic church, we're saying that we have the continuation of the doctrine of the apostles of, uh, who are of Jesus Christ. And I point this out for a couple of reasons. One is because people today, a lot of times people today will say, um, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And, <laughs> you know, I get it, right? I mean, you know, uh, uh, Jesus was flawless and the church has flaws, people have, but, um, Uh, You know, you can kind of push back on that. Uh, First of all, a lot of times when people say that, they maybe haven't read Jesus' words very very closely. Um, But um, what do they mean? Well, they usually probably mean, uh, either, that they don't like the morality teachings that we get in the epistles of Paul, especially sexual morality. Uh, Because he talks, you know, it's common today uh, for people to say Jesus never said anything about x or y that Paul does. So I follow Jesus but I don't really care about Paul and I'm here to say that you don't have that option. (laughs) Okay I mean you can't have Jesus and not have the apostles because they are the carriers of the words by the authority of Jesus. You know the father has sent me Jesus says and I'm sending you and he who hears you hears me. So when the apostles speak, you know, they are uh, you know, infallible, if I'll use that, uh, use that word, uh, especially in, in terms of what we have as, as scripture. So they, um, y- you don't really have the ability to say you don't have Paul, because Jesus himself calls Paul to be his spokesman to the Gentiles, and to be sent a- as an apostle, uh, think of it as a king. Who sends a messenger to another group uh, with the authority to announce what the king has decreed or decided? So when that uh, spokesman or ambassador goes under the authority of the king to give and relay the words of the king, uh, you can't reject the ambassador and still be on good terms with the king. So uh, it, it isn't really um, something that uh, that Christians can 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 argue that that. You know, we love Jesus, but we're not all that uh, keen on St. Paul for whatever reason. We have, to, we have to take the words of Paul and of all the writers of Scripture, old and new, but we have to take it all as, as God's word. These are the words of Jesus put in the mouth of Paul. In fact, usually, <laughs> moderns like to do it in the reverse order, that the church puts in the mouth of Jesus what they want to say. That's a critical way to look. Uh, but, but, but the Christian church says that no, that Jesus puts his word in the mouths of the apostles and then they speak in, in their verse by virtue of the, what they wrote uh, to us today. So you even have Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 2.20 saying, uh, and I, I have the quote here somewhere but in my notes, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. Um, basically, that the church is founded upon the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ as their chief cornerstone. Now, wouldn't you maybe expect it to just say, the church is founded on Jesus? Right? But he says that, uh, but he also says the church is founded upon the prophets and the apostles. So when we say in the creed that we believe in the apostolic church, that's what we're saying. We are the church that is founded on the... When it says prophets and apostles, that's the Bible. Okay? Old and new. We have... Uh, God's word, and it is on the word of God that, that our church is based, with Jesus Christ himself as our chief cornerstone. Uh, so, um, yeah, the prophets and the apostles. Um, again, just kind of tying into some church history stuff, and then I'll, I'll get to Pentecost for sure. Um, uh, so when the apostles physically died, they handed on the office. Their successors weren't apostles, but they did select men to serve in the churches in various offices, capacities. Now, um, early Christians began to develop a thought called apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. And it means one thing in the early church, but the medieval and modern Catholic church has kind of elaborated on it. And again, I'm just going to point this out a little bit. We're going to be dealing with Paul. I mean, the book Acts of the Apostles is called that. Acts of the Apostles. I mean, more accurately, might be the Acts, uh, a few of the Acts of Peter and John, but mostly the Acts of Paul. Okay, so I mean, it, but the Acts of the Apostles. Well, what are the Apostles? And um, well, when th- when they died and they handed on authority to to successors, um, what does that mean? So so in uh, amongst our, our Catholic brethren, uh, they would interpret that a little differently than say, uh, let's say Lutherans do. What does it mean to be a successor of the apostle? I mean, your pastor, our pastor, is a successor in this place of the apostles, in a sense, right? I mean, he is sent, he's a sent one. He's, as, my, uh, as our mutual prof, uh, Professor Marcourt used to say, uh, uh, he's, he's God's man in this place. You know, our pastor is God's man in this place. So uh, our Catholic friends will say, well, there is actually a literal succession, you know, through the ordination, through the handing down, the laying on of hands, there's a passing of the spirit of of, um, apostolic authority amongst the bishops. And so that is actually kind of a a big deal uh, for, for Catholicism. And one reason why they would look at Lutherans and say, you don't actually have the ministry of Jesus because your pastors... cannot trace a literal hands-on, laying on of hands, all the way back to the apostles, and we can. Because when the Lutherans started, (laughs) uh, lots of people were converting in Saxony, say, to, to the Lutheran message, including priests, and lots of monks, but not very many bishops. And so when you don't have bishops converting, how do you ordain new people? So they had to kind of think through that and think, well, it's not actually, being an apostle, or being a successor of the apostles, is not about literally having this, hand laying on of hands down through time, although that's part of it, but that it is more important to say that we teach what the apostles taught. We're the apostolic church, and that we have the apostolic teaching. Okay, so that's a detour on, on a single word <laughs> but, uh, but but you know so they, so they select uh, Matthias to be numbered amongst the apostles okay so I want to go into chapter 2 I, uh, like I said I'm just going to breeze through a lot of things with this class so if, if there's anything in chapter 1 uh, or at any point if you want to pause make me pause uh, don't, don't hesitate to do that ask questions or whatever Okay, so Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> we're going to talk about Pentecost. I'll give you a little bit of the, the Jewish background of that day. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the, the dramatic episode of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto them, and the speaking in tongues. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that today and maybe into next week. Because I think, I mean, I, you know, th- that's just another one of those very important things in the book of Acts, a theological part of the book of Acts that, um, uh, that Christians, various Christian groups, read differently <laughs> and have different ideas, uh, specifically the speaking in tongues. So I won't evade that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, Acts chapter <coughs> 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So whose day? Uh, they, probably the passage right before, we're still talking about the 12, Mary, the women, and, and, uh, and most definitely some, o- some others, but it's probably not, like I said, the 120, because if they're in a house in Jerusalem, I mean, that, they wouldn't have that much room. So I don't know. is the apostolic group uh, are together in one place uh, on the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost is a Jewish day, Right? I mean, it, it, I'm not sure how much you know about Jewish festivals. You know, all, all know about Passover. You all probably know about um, Yom Kippur, at least by name. And you might know of Hanukkah, okay? But, uh, and, and you probably heard all the others, too. But, uh, but, uh, but Pentecost is the Greek name for a Jewish festival from the, from the Old Testament. One of the main festivals uh, from the Old Testament. So I'll, just, I'll define it a little bit, because I think that when we understand what Pentecost meant to the Jews, then it'll, we'll, we'll see why, we'll kind of see a connection uh, to, to the, what we call, as Christians, we call Pentecost. Okay? So Jews today probably don't ever call it Pentecost, because uh, that's a Greek word. Uh, they, they call it the festival of weeks. Um, uh, Shavuot as uh, the Hebrew, festival of weeks. And it is 50 days after the Passover. So we ha- that's how we celebrate it. So you have Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. and then—and Well, his death and resurrection. And then he's amongst his disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom. Then he ascends. And so it's a 10-day it's period. That's what we know. Between Jesus' ascension, where he says to them, go back to Jerusalem and wait. And they did, and what they do? They prayed, and they appointed Matthias. And they waited for 10 days, and then this happened. <laughs> um, so what what does Pentecost mean? What is Shavuot uh, for, uh, for, for Judaism? Couple things. One is that it is, uh, it's a harvest festival. Uh, in Israel, they have harvest twice a year, and so there's a spring harvest and a fall harvest. And so the spring harvest, um, it's, uh, it's, it's after the Passover, and, uh, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a festival to celebrate and give thanks to the plenty that God provides uh, through their uh, agriculture, so it's an agricultural holiday. But by the time of Jesus, by the first century, the festival of Shavuot had an, an additional meaning, a, th- a more theological meaning, beyond just being a thanksgiving s- service. Um, they began to identify that as an anniversary of God giving the law to Israel through Moses on Sinai. So that event, the giving of the law by God to Moses on Sinai, is this is seen as a commemoration of that, a celebration um, of that. Um <clears throat> so you have, um, uh, you, so in the Jewish salvation, Hat history or in their economy of salvation, you have what? You have God making the promise to Abraham. You have the, I mean there's other things too, but you have uh, the, the, um, the uh, right of circumcision to be brought into the covenant. You have, <coughs> of course, then the, the slavery in Egypt, but then you have the, the Passover. Very significant. The, most, uh, the greatest saving event in the Old Testament, is the liberation of the people out of slavery into, into the eventually, the promised land. And, and then, so they, they have the exodus, they have Passover, the exodus, they march through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they wander in the wilderness for a long time. But early in that pe- uh, period, they go to Sinai. And on Sinai, Moses goes up, and uh, he's there on Sinai for 40 days, okay? He's there for 40 days. Actually, he was there for 80 days because he went up there 40 and then came down and threw down the tablets and then had to go back up and get it again. But, uh, um, uh, but okay, and, and the giving of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the giving of the law is by Judaism seen as their constituting event, right? I mean, all these other things are very important, but as a nation, as, as a nation, it is that event which is their, um, you know, uh, signing of the, whatever, it's Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's that, n- not even that. It's their day where, or their event where they say, now we are a people, now we are a nation uh, with laws. Okay, the giving of the Torah. All right, so with that in mind, in the New Testament now, we have, and of course these are Jew, oh, mostly Jews in, in uh, the Upper Room um, on, on, on this Pentecost. But remember, the new covenant, that's the old covenant. The new covenant is brought about by what? Um, the promise and uh, the, the Passover, only our Passover, you know, our Passover is, uh, is Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb, uh, Paul tells us. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, this is why, <clears throat> and I don't, I don't think we do this here, so I'm not going to hopefully uh, make a mistake here. <laughs> what I'm going to say. But uh, you know, uh, a lot of times Christians, very well-meaning Christians, uh, will do a uh, um, a seder, right? A Passover reenactment in uh, um, in their churches, usually on Monday Thursday, and I think that's inadvisable. The we have a pass, our Passover lamb is Jesus Christ, and that is the Passover to which the other uh, was a. Uh, a shadow or a pointer now if you do it as a just sort of an educational thing i guess but but i don 't want it to, i wouldn 't want it to distract from the actual you know the, that 's just the sign now we have the substance in jesus and uh, and the new covenant of his blood and the Eucharist so um, forty days and then and then ten we have now the giving of the spirit, which is accompanied by signs and Sometimes we call this the birthday of the church, right? The, it's the founding moment. I actually kind of don't do that because I think the, um, there's a lot of times where we could say the church, you know, the crucifixion, the resurrection, or whatever, or many other, go to the Old Testament. So <coughs> I want to make sure I, I say a few words, and we'll probably do more of this next week um, if you like, but I want to make sure I say a few words about the, the phenomena that are associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and, you know, uh, very familiar that uh, they are, suddenly the room is filled with a loud wind, and then it says, what, tongues of fire appear on their heads, and then it says they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues, and there are people around, and they are speaking in other languages, and that people are hearing those, uh, the apostles and, and whomever else and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in, the, in their own language. And it's a marvel and, uh, and they, they talk about it and you know, later on someone says, well, these guys must be drunk. I mean, if you're in a room and you have 12 people start apparently babbling because you're not going to, I mean, unless you're multilingual, um, you know, if you hear pe- a bunch of people speaking in languages you don't know, maybe one of them you do, um, it might sound like uh, gibberish. And uh, so, so, yes, they say, well, they're, they're clearly drunk. And, um, Peter says, no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning, which I think is kind of humorous. What, I mean, what if it had been 3 in the afternoon? I mean, <laughs> that mean well, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., third hour. But, uh, okay, so, so let me just make a few points about those phenomena and then we can maybe talk about the significance of the speaking in tongues when we pick up uh, next time, depending. Um, so the wind and, and the fire, and then the, and then the speaking in other languages. Well, um, wind and fire are, um, throughout the Bible, look through the Old Testament, wind and fire, particularly fire, are associated with the presence of God. Uh, it's common where God speaks, especially the speaking of God. When God speaks, He often speaks through fire. Okay, you know the burning bush, the pillar of fire by day that led the Israelites, and the pillar, uh, or pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. But, uh, but, but you know, so, so God frequently speaks, um, through, uh, th- through fire, and, um, and then, and then they speak in tongues. Well, uh, there's a Jewish tradition, and that's as much as I can say that it is. But there's a Jewish tradition recorded for us in Philo of Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria was a first century Jewish intellectual teacher who uh, was a contemporary of Jesus, but he didn't live in Israel. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt, which was a, had a large Jewish contingent, but was a place of great learning uh, in, in Greek thought. Well, anyway, Philo of Alexandria records something. He's not a Christian, but he records something that I think is very curious. He says, <coughs> so he doesn't, I mean, he, he, he's not a Christian, um, and and um, so he's not reading the book of Acts when he says this. He says that um, when Moses received the law, it was accompanied by wind and fire and the speaking in other languages. Now, um, I don't know if that happened. I mean, that's Philo that's not in the Bible that says that that happened with Moses. But... But it was, a, it was, at least for some Jews, it was what, how, what they thought of when they thought of Moses getting the law at Sinai and the presence of God speaking to the people that he, and sealing the, in, in, in regards to the covenant, that there's wind, there's fire, and they're speaking in other languages. Because Exodus does tell us that it, when the Jews left Egypt, it was a mixed group. In other words, there were non-Jews that went with them. So maybe... Um, Theologians, especially early church theologians, like to say maybe there's a parallel going on here because uh, if, if, if Shavuot is the celebration of the giving of the law and the Jewish understanding of that is that it was accompanied by those particular three signs, now uh, those things kind of have some context in Pentecost, uh, the Christian Pentecost where we have the pouring out, the speaking in other languages, the fire. So God is present in fire and wind and he's speaking, and he's speaking for, the, uh, for all the people. A lot of times people will note that this is a, a, a reversal of the confusion in, in Babel, in Genesis. You know the story. When, when the people of, of, of Babel were um, uh, building a tower up to the heavens uh, to, to make a name for themselves, God confused their language. And do you remember, without looking it up, do you remember what um, what it says in Genesis that, that God said was why he's doing that? Why did he confuse the languages? Yes. He was worried that the tower was being built too high and that they would uh, approach heaven and be aware of too much. Okay, so so the answer was that um, they're building a tower too high, it approaches heaven, and that they're knowing... Too much, or thinking they know too much. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I would t- so much emphasize the height, although it, it, that's it. But uh, you know, I mean, no matter how high you go, you're not going to get to heaven. <laughs> you know, it's not like you go high enough. Um, but 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 it says God says because you know they they will think there's nothing that they can't do. Right. All right. So there's a hubris. There's a hubris. So God confuses the language of languages of the world, of the, of the peoples, so that they can't work together. Okay? And you can't get things done. Right? When you can't, you can't communicate. And so it's going to frustrate them. And people are going to become nationalistic. And they're going to gather by languages. And then they're going to hate people that aren't them. And there's going to be all kinds of horrible things. I mean, the world is divided now. Language being a key part of that. So God's now reversing that. He's undoing that act of curse, and he's saying now we're going to be, the, the, we're gathering again together and national uh, loyalties and uh, cultural and linguistic uh, uh, divisions are no longer going to be significant for the church. So the church is the Catholic church. So when we say, so I talked about apostolic, and now I'm going to talk about one and Catholic, and we'll do holy maybe. But one and Catholic. The Catholic, the universal church of all languages and all, all peoples, all people groups. Um, now, in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, I mean, these were, these were still mostly Jews and God-fearers. But, uh, but it's significant that they were of different languages, different places, and, uh, and to some extent different cultures. And now they have this capacity of being one that they didn't have uh, even before that. So, let's see. Okay, the, uh, just a preview of next week. Um, when I talk to you more specifically, we'll start next time with talking about the speaking in tongues itself. What is it? Uh, is what happens in Acts chapter two the same thing as what happens in 1 Corinthians? And how do we, we kind of navigate those waters? And there's a lot of different differences of, of view on that. Um, when, was, it a, was it a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing or, or both so we heard them in our own language well does that mean they were speaking other languages or that you just heard was it a miracle that I heard them in other and we'll, we'll kind of look at those things and, uh, and talk about that all right and Pentecostalism will obviously be part of that all right thank you for your attention I think it's time uh, God bless thank you. you're welcome